Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of the Week. Our special guest this week is Megan McArdle, distinguished columnist for the Washington Post, making her second appearance on on Beg to Differ. And welcome back, Megan. Thank you for uh, having me. Hello to one and all. Well, uh, we've all, I think, just finished watching snippets of Rudy Giuliani's wild um, press conference. Um, it, uh, it, It was really an unspeakable desecration of everything one hopes for in American politics. Um, Layer that on top of the fact that 77% of those who voted for Trump think that the, that uh, the election was stolen. So here we are. Um, Megan, let's start with you. Uh, If you didn't catch any of the press conference, um, you know, there's there's a tone out there among some people, which is, look, these are clowns, uh, nothing to get upset about. You know, the, they'll they'll stop yelping in a few more weeks after the court cases are thrown out, and uh, no need to panic. You know, don't don't get excited. Um, I think that's both right and wrong. Okay. So on the one hand, I don't think that the Trump campaign genuinely thinks that there is any chance that a court is going to hand this election to them. Um, I don't even think that's the purpose of this. I think that the idea is that they throw up enough of a cloud that their supporters who will get more invested in the process than they will um, and who don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of the legal challenges and the procedural questions, because who does? Um will then sort of give them credibility that when Trump rides in the sunset, he will, instead of being just a loser who lost the presidency after four years because he wasn't very good at his job, um, will be the guy who had the election stolen from him. And he can he can monetize that and, you know, build up his own little Trumpian movement after uh, after this point. And I do think that that is their end game. I do not think that their end game is actually holding on to power. And I do not think that they will in any way succeed in holding on to power. That said, that is incredibly dangerous. Democracy is hard. And the way that we keep people doing this incredibly hard thing where you have to, you often get overruled by people you don't even like very much. Um, The way you get them to do that is that everyone has to agree that win or lose, the rules of the games are that when you lose the election by the duly appointed standards, you leave office and you don't whine about it. Um, Now, in fairness, Democrats have already started violating that, but this violation is so much bigger than anything that Democrats did and so much more dangerous that while we should have condemned Democrats more strongly um, when they were saying this sort of stuff. Um, like what? What are not, you referring to? Can Hillary you be specific? No, he's, he's not the legitimate. He knows he's not the legitimately elected president of the United States. Stacey right. Abrams refusing to concede the Georgia election, even though mm-hmm. she very clearly lost. Mm-hmm. The Democrats humored that. Mm-hmm. And that has made it now harder for them to say, this is outrageous. You can never do this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that said, it is, very, it's a, it is a very different thing when the sitting president of the United States refuses to concede the election. Um, throws out all of these completely worthless lawsuits, 
Um, and, and, you know, he convinces a bunch of his followers about these completely baseless conspiracy theories that, that the election was stolen for which they have no proof. And it's not even that like, it's totally impossible. It's just that like, it's totally possible that there is a planet out there somewhere that is made entirely of cotton candy and covered in like molasses rivers. I can't say that that is a true thing or even say that I think it's a true thing unless I have some reason other than like my imagination and the Trump campaign has evinced no reasons other than their imagination. You know, um, Bill picking up on Megan's point, look, there is something absolutely majestic about the simple rituals of democracy about the little canvassing boards in each community that show up every two years and then every four years in presidential races and you know count the votes, certify the votes, do their jobs. Uh, they, they give up their time. They uh, do a conscientious, they do conscientious work to make democracy flourish. And to have this wrecking crew swinging in, you know, with, with the crazed Giuliani, you know, sort of riding that ball, um, smashing into our institutions is a very depressing sight. Uh, uh, there may have been a question buried in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> your, your, your views, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, what can I do except agree? I've I've written about this. I've given interviews very recently about this, and uh, as is frequently the case with this administration, words fail. Yeah. Well, I, wait. I, I do have a question. If you don't mind my interrupting you, uh, answering my non-question, um, I I do sort of have a question because let, let's right. let's probe this this seventy-seven percent of Trump voters who think that uh, the election was stolen. You know, I. I wonder, and I wonder if you do, whether that is really an expression of their genuine belief or whether it is that, you know, this is a group of people we already know who are highly dubious about pollsters in general, right? I mean, that's why the polls were so wrong in 2020 is that a lot of Trump voters simply said, oh, you're a pollster, click. Um, and it, because they were viewed as part of the deep state, part of the establishment that doesn't like people like me and so on. And so it seems possible to me, and maybe you tell me if I'm being too cheery and optimistic, but it seems possible to me that those people, rather than actually saying, yes, I believe every word the great leader says, are simply saying, yeah, I believe it was stolen because they want to support him and they want to show that they don't like people like pollsters. What do you think? Uh, what I think is you could be right, uh, but the only way to know for sure is to go out and to talk with these people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think after the past two presidential elections, we've all learned a big lesson now reinforced uh, that numbers are no substitute for what used to be the heart of old fashioned reporting, the David Broder style, uh, when you actually knock on doors and talk with people. Now, granted, there are reasons why people except Republicans weren't knocking on doors this time, uh, but uh, you know, but as a long-term proposition, uh, I am less willing than I was 10 years ago simply to rely on the numbers uh, as, you know, as interpreting themselves or as easily interpretable. I think we're going to need to need to do better than that. Uh, and, 
we're going to need to talk to people, including people we don't ordinarily talk to, and do so very systematically. Damon, on Wednesday night, uh, I was you know, happily watching something on Netflix. And instead, you know, uh, alerts began to flash across my screen about something happening at the canvassing board in Wayne County, Michigan, which is where Detroit is located. Um, and, uh, well, you want to fill us in on what happened and give your views about uh, how much of this uh, destruction is going to be serious and have long-lasting effects on the country. Well, at the canvassing board in Wayne County, they were supposed to have a, a simple uh, unanimous vote is the way it's supposed to go with the four members, two of whom are Republicans, two Democrats, and just certify that the, the votes have been counted accurately. And then it bumps up to the next level at the state for the state canvassing board. And then from there, it goes to uh, the legislature to to appoint electors in a few weeks. Um and instead, the two Republican members voted no. Uh, and so you had this split. And then uh, they invited calls and comments from voters who called in outrage, screaming at them for uh, disenfranchising the voters of Wayne County, uh, emphasizing very often that there are a lot of uh, black Americans and Hispanic Americans in those districts in, in that county. And it turns out, actually, I mean, it's a it's a very diverse county. It's about 50 percent white, 40 percent uh, African-American. And then the rest are smaller numbers than that. Uh, it's a mixed a mixed county. It is easily the largest county in Michigan. Uh, I think it has some upwards of 1.8 million voters in it, and uh, Biden won it a very by a very wide margin. So, if Trump could magically make that largest county of voters in Michigan disappear, uh, I haven't looked at the numbers, but he probably would win uh, the state. But of course, that's like you know crazy talk. Well, of course, you know Biden could win all 50 states if he just disenfranchised all Trump voters. That's not not how you run an election. You actually count the votes that were cast. Now, it, it, then, it then turned out that after being berated by the callers for a few hours, uh, they kind of cut the feed to the TVs and apparently re-voted. And then it turned out it was it was for nothing. Then the next day, the Republicans, uh, apparently Trump reached out and called them, and then they tried to rescind their votes, which just turned it into more of a circus. Um, as for the longer term question of how this plays out, I have to say that after that that unbelievable press conference today by Rudy Giuliani, and even more so uh, this lawyer, Sidney Powell, who's sort of taken up the, the mantle of Trump's great conspiracy defender, I would never say that there's more than a, a negligible chance that they pull this off, but could... Could this really lead to a major, major political crisis over the next few weeks and a couple of months? I think the chance of that rise every single day, and after seeing that press conference, I'm more concerned than ever. Trump is not showing the slightest inclination of backing down. He has now invited Republican members of the Michigan legislature to visit the White House tomorrow, where he will no doubt do everything he can to twist their arms to try to get them to appoint 
uh, Trump electors rather than Biden electors. He's going to try this in Georgia. He's going to try it in Pennsylvania and anywhere else he can. And, you know, does that end with Trump being uh, being sworn in for a second term on January 20th? I, I don't think so. But exactly how destructive this ends up being, I don't think we have any good idea. I think we're in the the full-on presidential equivalent of that crazy period in the late fall and early winter of 2015-16 when Trump was bleeding in the polls and everyone kept saying, there's no way he can be the nominee. There's no way that'll happen. And then it happened. And again, that doesn't mean Trump is going to succeed at this. But um, exactly how bad this could get, I would not want to be forced to guess at this point. Linda, um, one could make the case uh, that what Trump and his lackeys, which alas includes many leading members of the Republican Party, are attempting to do is to steal the election that they are claiming was stolen from them. Um, Yes. (laughs) So I I think maybe we should call them banana Republicans from now on. There Um, you go. I like uh, that. I like that, Bona. Thank you. Well, Uh, so, so, but, but. You know, there have been little green shoots also. Um, Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia, um, stood up on his hind legs and said, no, I'm not going to sacrifice my integrity uh, for you. And he said the vote was fair and the vote was clean and there's no widespread fraud. There may be an occasional mistake or there may have been an occasional attempt. But uh, anyway, Um, so so. do you do you have a sense that I mean did that did that restore your faith the uh, the Raffensperger example? Uh, not really. No. Um, okay. Let, so let me sort of back up to where this conversation started, and that uh, particularly this notion that seventy seven percent of Trump voters uh, believe that the election was stolen. Okay, so that's fifty four million people. Let's say that that's wildly off. Let's say it's only twenty seven million people in the United States that believe the election was stolen. That is a huge problem for a democracy. And let me raise the issue which I think causes me personal pain. And that is that this whole notion of stolen elections and stolen votes and rampant fraud uh, that occurs particularly in big cities, um, according to the narrative, uh, is something that conservatives have been pushing for years, That the latter point, that uh, there is corruption in big city politics and that you can't trust uh, that people cast their votes fairly, that they're counted fairly, that there isn't some sort of fiddling. And, you know, for years and years, the Republican Party has had a voter integrity project. They've gone out and uh, pressed laws in, in states to require more and more stringent measures to ensure that the people who cast votes are actually eligible to vote on the presumption that there are thousands, maybe even more, uh, people who are not eligible to vote who do. Uh, I supported the idea of having uh, voter ID that, you know, if, if I have to show my ID in order to get into not just a government building, but even some uh, you know, non-government buildings and uh, in the wake of 9-11, why shouldn't I have to show an ID to vote? It seemed to me to make sense. I now look back at that and think that I was being a useful idiot. 
and that I was supporting measures based on assumptions that are simply untrue. That, I mean, I I think if anything comes out of this election, what we're going to find out is the amount of actual fraud is virtually negligible. And every attempt to find fraud, including Trump's own commission that he appointed at the beginning uh, of his term, has never been able to find that fraud. Nonetheless, if you have large numbers of people believing that it exists, and it also has a racial uh, tinge to it, they're not alleging fraud in Trump uh, counties. I mean, one of the ironies of uh, the recount in Georgia is that the only place where there really was some malfeasance, and it was incompetence on the part of one of the uh, local officials was that they found something like 2,500 votes that had not, in fact, been counted. That was in Trump territory. That was in a place where, you know, the Republicans basically are in control. But the narrative has always been that it's black people and brown people uh, who are fraudulently voting. I mean, we had Trump last time claiming, you know, that uh, 3 million illegal immigrants uh, had voted in the election. So I see this is as a huge challenge for democracy going forward, and I'm going on at some length here. But but I th- I think the problem's not going to be over just because on January 21st Joe Biden uh, becomes president in the United States. I think we have a level of mistrust that is being fo- fostered by responsible people, otherwise responsible people, that is deeply deeply damaging to our democracy. Uh, well, I I agree with you and Damon. I'm uh, and I'm sure Bill and and Megan too. I think we're all quite concerned about the corrosive effect of this on our on our social uh, interactions and on our democracy. It's uh, it's worrisome, and uh, it comes on the heels of many many years. Certainly, this is what I'm most familiar with. I, I'm sure there's I know there's some of this on the left as well of you know, this, this conspiracy mongering and myth making, I mean, back in 2004 in democratic circles, there were stories about the Diebold or Diebold machines that were supposedly responsible for giving the election to George W. Bush. And, um, you know, the nine 11 truthers were, were more prevalent on the left for a while, not, not anymore, but for a while. Uh, so this is a this is a longstanding longstanding issue. But by the way, a couple things. One is I just cannot imagine why if the um, if the Democrats went to all the trouble to 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 steal elections in these close states that they didn't also take the Senate. I mean, what's wrong with these conspirators? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, oh. you have to understand that's part of the cover up. Oh, right? they, you know. That's how they make it plausible. Oh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, a really, yeah. really, I mean, so I, worked, I started my career as a writer or blogger working at Ground Zero, and I made the mistake once of tangling with a 9-11 uh, truther. And it's, it's totally unfalsifiable. Yeah. Because right. any, any evidence against it is just actually evidence of how deep the conspiracy goes. Right, right, right. Who was the philosopher who pointed out that the flaw in Freud's theory was that it was unfalsifiable, right? You know, if you if you say you hate your mother, you know, you you hate your mother. Well, if you say you love your mother, you really hate your mother, and if you say you hate whatever. Anyway, um Bill, did you want to follow up? 
Don't hear Bill. Shock of recognition more and more uh, that Trump represents. Oh, okay. Uh, You know, I'm having this experience more and more often of of seeing Trump as the culmination of deep seated trends rather than as the initiator of them. And, you know, I've been thinking recently, just looking back. The last president whose election and inauguration uh, wasn't seriously contested was George H.W. Bush in 1988. There were a bunch of people who never accepted Bill Clinton as the legitimate president, right, for reasons that I won't go through right now, but they were mainly cultural. Uh there were a lot of Democrats who didn't accept George W. Bush as legitimate because of Florida. There were a lot of Republicans who didn't accept Barack Obama as legitimate uh, for some very bad reasons, but they were very prevalent. There were a number of Democrats who didn't accept Donald Trump as legitimate uh, because of the Electoral College and for you know for other pretty deep reasons. Uh, and so the delegitimation crisis that we're going through right now has a history, mm-hmm. uh, a swelling history. And uh, God willing, this represents the peak and crest, because if not, uh, we're in even bigger trouble than I think. Well, that leads us very nicely into our second topic, which is can Biden heal the breach? Um, Bill, you let's stick with you for now, because you had a column uh, this week uh, on this very topic, which I did not know when I listed this as one of the things I thought we should talk about. But uh, but you have some thoughts about what kinds of policies he should pursue in light of the outcome of the election and the, the riven state of our polity. I do. And they're likely to be very unpopular proposals in many quarters in my own political party. Uh, and everything depends on the balance that you know that Biden strikes between his mission and his agenda. His mission, and he's made this very clear, is to heal the country, or at least begin the process of healing the country. And I think he's dead serious about this. On the other hand, his agenda includes a lot of items that are bound to be controversial and the more, the more controversial, the harder he pushes them. Uh, and so I made the proposal in my article that he ought, at least for now, at the beginning of his administration, to put healing first, uh, which means accepting half lopes in a number of different areas. It means not doing things like a national mask mandate that would exacerbate the disagreements uh, over over the best response and the most constitutional and moral response to to COVID-19, but instead work through the governors. It means accepting a smaller COVID-19 bill uh, than Speaker Pelosi wants, significantly smaller. Uh, And it, it means that except in matters of moral principle, uh, compromise should come first if we're going to have any chance of bottoming out and then beginning to reverse this vicious 
spiral, descending spiral that we've been lo locked into. And I, further, I would further propose, although for strategic reasons I didn't make this point in my column, that when we're dealing with competing moral principles, like an expansive conception of equality bumping up against an expansive conception of religious liberty, that backing away from the extreme demands on both sides and looking for a way of giving recognition and respect to both, both of these principles, which are legitimate within due bounds, is the way that uh, President-elect Biden should be thinking about de-escalating cultural conflict. I have a whole host of specific proposals under this heading. Uh, and the last thing we need is more, li more litigation about religious groups being forced to do things contrary to conscience. Uh, and I know all of the counter arguments, but there are a lot of states that have managed to work out a balance a lot better than the federal government has. I could go on, right. but you know, but but healing, he, if healing is going to be more than a slogan, this is the this is the bottom line and main point of my article. It's going to be more than a slogan. It means compromise. That's not just verbal compromise, but real compromise. It means that you give way on things, some things that you really care about. Megan, um, the Democrats, other than taking the presidency, which was huge, huge, Democrats were thinking that they would take more seats in the House, maybe 10 more was the estimate. They were confident, I think, fairly confident that they would win a majority in the Senate. And as it turned out, the Republicans gained a net of seven seats in the House. That's subject to changes that may still come in, but not big ones. And um, they only gained a net of one Senate seat. So they lost Alabama, which is understandable, and they won in Colorado and Arizona. But uh, many of the other states they were hoping for did not come through. That is Iowa, North Carolina, and, and Alaska, a bunch of others, uh, Maine. So, um, so it was disappointing. Um, and Republicans um, are set to control redistricting in 188 congressional seats, um, or 43% of the House, compared with um, the Democrats uh, holding, uh, being able to control redistricting of 73 seats, which is 17%. Um, do you think this is... Um, do you think that Bill's advice will fall on fertile ground in light of this? Or do you see the Democrats concluding that they just weren't, they didn't get their message out well enough and they just have to say their left-wing messages about defunding the police louder? So let me tell the happy story and the not happy story. Okay. So the happy story is Joe Biden's an old school politician, right? He comes out of an era where the United States was much less ideologically polarized. That is his instinct, is to make deals um, across party lines to sort of tamp down the differences and so forth. I mean, he was, to be fair, a participant in the the Clarence Thomas stuff, which was extremely polarizing. Um but in general, he he does he he believes what he's saying. This is not just empty talk. But um, you know he has a problem, which is that his party doesn't, and the leadership is a bunch of old people who are trying to keep the young people from nuking everything. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the happy story is that look, the Democrats 
thought that they were because Trump was so bad. They were on on the verge of this kind of once in a generation moment where they could get enough control of the Senate, the House, the presidency to do things like adding states, to do things like court packing, right? And that those were going to make it easier for them to change what they perceive as a structural unfairness in the in the United States political system that enables Republicans to gain representation far outside of their power. You know, in fact, as Ross Douthat of the New York Times has pointed out, um, that's a little local paper in New York, uh, but he's a very <laughs> good columnist and people should read him. As he's pointed out, it's actually not that big a structural imbalance in terms of numbers. It's like maybe it's you know, Democrats get 51, 52, Democrats get, uh, Republicans get 48, 49% of the vote. So it's actually a pretty small uh, structural imbalance that enables Republicans to be competitive uh, with slightly less than 50% of the vote. Um, but it matters a lot. And they it, it feels unjust to Democrats. Um, and in some sense, it is. Um, well, the Senate is structurally unjust to Democrats, right? The House, the House is as well because each because you have um, places like Wyoming that get a House seat, even though they're tiny and would not qualify for one if they were part of a state. That that's right. right. Um, but, but the big advantage is that they get two senators yeah. out of a hundred. Which the big, is the big disadvantages in the Senate. There is yeah. also a structure. Well, in, at the House level, it's a little different. It's it's partly that 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 you know everyone gets a house seat no matter how small they are and it's partly um, actually just that re- Democrats just naturally tend to be more concentrated you know you don't yes. have a lot of Republican districts even if you were drawing them completely fairly right even if you had a computer that was just like sorting everyone with no regard to their party you would end up with with Republican districts that went say sixty percent Republican. Um, and you would end up with a lot of Democratic districts that went like 80% Democratic. And that's just if you're doling this stuff out geographically, you you only want to win by as much as you need to win in a first-past-the-post district. Mm-hmm. So there is that unfairness. And they were kind of hoping that they were on the edge of taking over. And so the, the happy story is that they look at this and they're like, dude, we can't do this. With The culture war stuff is not a winning message for us. We're losing Latinos in Texas. We're losing Latinos in Florida. Like, we need a rethink about what where we're going as a party and how far and how much we can cater to a very woke, educated, urban uh, base, which is now a growing part of their party, right? Um, the unhappy story is that you know, in the same way that I was one of the few people who did not sign on to the boy, I hope, who was never Trump, but who did not sign on to, like, Republicans need to lose at every level to teach them a lesson. Because my thought was, first of all, I don't think that's how politics works. People generally don't learn lessons like that. And second of all, um, my thought was, like, if they lose the Senate, who's left in the party, right? It's going to be all the most radical Trumpiest people in the Trumpiest districts. And actually what you might end up with is the party moving more in that direction because there's no counterweight from needing to hold moderate seats. Um, and I think that that's the unhappy story is that if you look at those two things, first of all, like because they can't give the, the, their, their left flank what it wants legislatively, they don't have the power. The temptation is going to be to give them a bunch of stuff in the administration. And this is what Obama did and how Obama ended up with a bunch of the stuff that ended up, I think, helping to elect Trump by convincing evangelicals that they were under existential threat from, you know, from government offices that were going to shut down their schools, shut down their institutions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
And the danger is that he does that again because he can't give them anything legislatively. He doesn't have the power to do it. He's going to have to make compromises. And the other danger is that what's left in Congress is, by definition, the more left-wing people, the people who lost were in the centrist districts, who had the most connection to voters that you want in order to like actually turn down the temperature and actually stop prosecuting these culture wars. So I'm not sure which of these two stories is true. Joe Biden certainly wants the first story to be true, where we try to go back to a politics that's a lot more like 1992 when stuff gets done and people kind of understand that like rubbing, like not merely winning a few battles, but like knocking your opponent down, grabbing his collar and just grinding his face into the dirt. Um, that that's not a good way to try to do politics, but I don't know if he can actually make that happen because structurally that's not where the country is. And there's only so much one man can do. Damon, are you concerned that, um, because Biden in all likelihood will not have control of the Senate and, uh, will only have a narrow majority in the house that he will be tempted in the way that Obama was tempted and that Trump really went all in on uh, just seeking to govern through executive orders? Oh, sure. I am. And I'm quite sure he will do some of that because uh, as Megan explained and, and Bill also, um, we're going to be in a situation where certainly nothing that the progressive left wants to, to do is going to get through the Senate. Uh, and then even more modest things. I mean, I hope that he can take advantage of kind of a little bit of goodwill in the first couple of months uh, to maybe pass something like an infrastructure bill or some other things that have the have a chance of of gaining some Republican support, uh, plus also maybe a stimulus uh, about you know related to COVID and the economy, but. Beyond that, I don't see much happening. And so the temptation will be great to use executive action uh, through executive branch departments and executive orders. I, I also, in, in addition to finding that uh, a kind of yet another example of the country sort of tiptoeing in the direction of uh, kind of autocratic leadership where presidents come out and sort of rule by decree. Um, I'm also concerned substantively at this, this pattern we're in where our dividedness as a country gets kind of echoed at the level of policymaking by these 180 degree reversals of policy yeah. where, where, you know, Obama can't do certain things. So he, he, you know, he, he passes uh, immigration reform and DACA by fiat. He just sort of makes it happen by executive order. Trump comes in, gets rid of it by executive order. Biden comes back in, makes it, uh, you know, puts it back into effect again by executive order. This can happen with all kinds of regulations where Obama And with foreign policy. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's worse in foreign policy, much right. worse, because in foreign policy, presidents have much more leeway anyway. And so we're in this situation where, where uh, in foreign policy, Obama signs up with the Paris Accord on climate change. He does the Iran deal. Trump comes in, scuttles both of them. Now Biden says he's coming in and he's going to try to join both of them yet again. 
you know, this is... Uh, I don't think he committed to rejoining the JCPOA, did he? Well, I, he's he's made sounds as if he's going to try. I think our guest uh, last week... Uh, what, uh, Eric Edelman. Yeah, Eric Edelman. Yeah, he made the very good point, I think, that, uh, that that's actually going to be much more difficult than he might like, simply because the, the situation on the ground has changed. Iran is wildly out of compliance in a way that they weren't four years ago. And so you can't just go back to the original the original deal, let, let alone the fact of why would they do that? Because they, and that's the point, is that every country in the world we're dealing with, friend, foe, and in between, is going to feel like, well, how can I trust you to do anything when four years from now you might vote in Trump again or another Trumpian candidate who will once again reverse 180 degrees. That's not how you run a country, at least not a serious one who wants to be taken seriously, again, by friends and foes on the world stage. So it's all it's all very troubling. Yeah. Linda, what, yeah, related to Damon's point is something that I think about sometimes, not, not just sometimes, namely that um, our, one of our greatest strengths in uh, this world is, that is the U.S., is that we are perceived to be the most stable country uh, that is wealthy uh, in the world, you know, and large, right? I mean, Switzerland's stable, but it's not big. Um, but you know, our stability is a is is a huge asset that can be squandered. Um, it's an asset because you know we have the reserve currency, and the only reason we are the reserve currency is because we are perceived to be a stable regime. And the more we, you know, whipsaw ourselves and our policies this way, and the more we're perceived to be banana Republicans, as it were, um, the, the less that people around the world are going to think, yeah, the U.S. is really the place where you, you know, you really want to hold dollars. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think you, um, you and Bill as well sort of hit it on the head. This, this, is, this question about American stability didn't just start in the Trump administration. There were some some whipsawing that took place uh, during the Obama years as well. And I think that what is going to be very, very uh, worrisome coming up is the role that Trump is going to continue to play as someone who will, just for selfish reasons, uh, want to stay front and center. He's going to want to have uh, a platform, whether it's a media platform or whether it is a campaign. I mean, let's remember that his re-election campaign started the day of the inaugural, as I recall. Um, his uh, re-election campaign for 2024 is going to start again on January 21st, and he is going to want to remain front and center. And what that is going to do is it is going to paralyze um, Republicans in the Senate, in the House, mostly in the Senate uh, is where it matters, uh, I think, the most. Um, and they are going to continue to be reluctant uh, to get back to our normal, stable way of doing things. And I think both uh, Damon and Bill have pointed out that uh, executive orders now seem to be um, the way that presidents govern. Uh, it started, um, well, we've had them for a long time, but I think they've been, um, they were taken to extremes uh, first by Obama and then uh, Trump uh, trumped Obama uh, in terms of the number of executive orders. We've gotten past the point where you can take in a contentious issue like immigration 
and realize that there have to be compromises. I loved Bill's column. I thought it was exactly on target that uh, if it were possible to sit down and decide what are some limited goals that can be reached, where can we come up with some legislative um, solutions on issues that have torn us apart? And I think Damon's right. I mean, we can look for, for money things. We can look for infrastructure bills and stimulus bills. But even on stimulus bills, there's going to be a huge difference between uh, those in the business community who do not want to see, you know, sustained uh, propping up of income for low-wage workers, because uh, I can tell you as somebody who sits on a public board of a company with low-wage workers, very hard to find people to work now. And so I think it's, I mean, we're just headed for the most challenging, difficult time outside of uh, a war that I think we've seen, uh, certainly in modern history. All right, let us now turn to the virus. Uh, we have reached an awful milestone with uh, 250,000 dead. Um, Megan, uh, you have been uh, in the past a uh, voice saying, uh, you know, subsidize everything, do everything you can. I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, you were, you know, very forceful about that. Um, what do you think is the role now? What uh, What would you like to see the new Biden administration do to attack the virus and handle it better than it's been handled? Um, in fantasy world where it's easy to do policy, <laughs> um, first thing, I, I wouldn't do a national mask mandate. It's not even that I think it's like, a bad idea in some imaginary world we don't live in. Right. Um, but I think it's totally unenforceable, right? The government would be relying on, on local authorities. They won't, it will merely heighten, uh, you know, divides that are already pretty high. Um, and I think it's, it's the wrong move for, for coming in. Um, what I would do honestly is backstop uh, governors and mayors who want to close very high risk businesses, which are basically gyms, restaurants, bars, anything where you're likely to take a mask off or to be exercising hard, singing. Um, and I would just subsidize them to stay closed. Um, you know, subsidize, require a kind of maintenance of effort. You have to keep your payrolls going, whatever. But I would, I would have done this six months ago. It will be, unfortunately, difficult to pull off because many of the businesses you would want to save will have failed by then. Um, but it's really actually, you know, it was a lot easier for mayors and, and governors to close businesses in the spring because there was some money that, that those businesses could draw on. I wouldn't make it loans, by the way. I would make it grants. I know that a lot of it would be wasted. I don't care. Um, that said, look, by the time he gets into office, we're already going to be past the peak um, of, of in new infections, I would bet, of course. Like I'm challenging nature to prove me wrong, <laughs> but I I think that um, what we're likely to see is that the worst in rate of infections is going to come sometime in the Thanksgiving to New Year's timeframe, um, and that thereafter the peak will come somewhere between three and four weeks. Peak in deaths, unfortunately, will come three to four weeks after those infections, um, and given that. Um, I think that by the time he gets into office, there's not actually going to be a whole lot he can do. Um, so what I would be focusing on is the vaccine rollout. 
what I'd be focusing on is making sure that we get shots and arms as quickly as possible, that we provide incentives for doing so, that we provide means for people to certify. I mean, one thing I'd really like to see is a site that's kind of public access where you can just certify that you've gotten vaccinated, right? That you can you can prove to people in the way that you can prove to people that you're a United States citizen by showing them a passport or whatever. You can prove to people that you've gotten a vaccine. And the reason I would do that is to make it easier for private sector actors who wish to, to require a vaccine of their employees or people who come to their concerts or whatever. Um, and I would make that, I would make that a priority. But I think that realistically, um, you know, getting PPE to, to doctors and hospitals, I would tell um, companies that make something called melt-blown polypropylene, which is possibly the most boring thing you will have ever heard. Um, it's actually is that the stuff that goes inside the mask, the N95 mask, and it's the reason. Yeah. Realistically, like a great thing to have would just be like as many N95 masks as you want. They should be free. They should be giving them away when you open a bank account, right? You should walk into a store and like, hey, want an N95 mask? I've got ten. Um, and you know, I think again, by the time this he gets into office, it's going to be late for that, but not too late because it really is going to be, you know, you're not going to see everyone who wants to have a vaccine vaccinated probably until summer. And so it would be helpful. But I think at this point, you know, Trump squandered a year and you can't really get that year back. And he is going to unfortunately be taking office right after the peak. And I don't know how much he can do except to make sure that when we start vaccinating, it goes out as quickly as possible and with all the help the federal government can give them. Um. Damon, among the things that were done so badly, I think that certainly uh, if you were rating Trump's mistakes, I guess maybe suggesting injecting bleach would be way up there. But but second to that would be making mask wearing a political statement. Um, but it is interesting, isn't it, Damon? And here's the question. It's not much of a question, but uh, it's interesting that governors in states like Iowa who had spurned masks are now requesting that people wear them because their hospitals are full. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you know, and all listeners definitely know I am not someone to hold my fire about Trump, uh, uh, but on mask wearing, that is not an issue where I put him near the top of um, of the of the guilty people. <laughs> um, I think he's obviously a major part of the problem and he encourages it, but this is a broader thing and it's actually a, it, it, it's something that's happening in other countries too. I mean there are, there are smaller but still real kind of anti-mask wearing movements in other countries in Europe and in other parts around the world as well. And then here it's especially uh, extreme and of, again they they take their inspiration from from Trump to some extent, but I do think it's sort of a kind of uh, it's something that's free flowing and free floating in the culture beyond him, a kind of kind of uh, pig headed American libertarianism, if you will. And I apologize to the libertarians in the room. I don't mean necessarily <laughs> people who come to their libertarianism through careful analysis of economics and policy questions. I mean, a kind Actually, of I just got mine in a cereal box. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> that that has its own appeal. Uh, no, I just mean that this kind of sense of like, don't tread on me. How dare you tell me how to live my life, even if it's doing something that will prolong my life, a kind of 
utter refusal to trust any authority to to, to give you practical uh, suggestions about how to behave. And it can be uh, very destructive. And I think that tr what Trump has done is tapped into that. But I don't think that Trump is the source of it per se. Um, and, you know, having someone who takes that position in the White House certainly helps it to, to gain force. But um, I don't think everyone you see around the country who's kind of pig-headedly refusing to wear a mask is doing it because Trump told them to. I think it's it's become a kind of cultural marker of, of you know, we're standing against the liberal busybodies in Washington who want to tell us how to live our lives. And the fact that I won't wear this shows that, I, that I'm saying up you to these people. Um, By the way, there are certainly a lot of people on the left who do want to tell people how to run their lives. I mean, <laughs> there's always some truth to it. Yeah, there's, there's always, always some truth, truth to it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there is this thing too of it's become a cultural signifier on the left. Like, so I live in Washington D.C., which has, as you might imagine, extremely high mask compliance because it's all a bunch of blue state people who none of whom voted for Trump, um, and. You know, I'm glad. I, I think masks wearing, it's not magic. It's not going to, you know, you can't then go out and like get in a mosh pit and think you're protected, but it's it helps on the margin. Um, but it's become this weird cultural signifier where if you're in my neighborhood, I walk around my neighborhood without a mask when I'm with my husband on the street and there's no one else in sight. But should someone come down the street to me, like I will see other people in a serious and similar condition um, and we both pull our masks up while we walk past. Now, is this necessary? I kind of doubt it. <laughs> I mean, that kind of very brief outdoor encounter is very unlikely to spread COVID. And yet we do it anyway. And it's this kind of, it's polite. It's right. not even that I'm doing it because I am I think it's protecting me. And I, I pretty much doubt it's going to protect them either. But there is a politeness about it, which is like, we do this to show that we are decent people who care about other human beings. And so it, it's weirdly politicized. But I, I have to say, Damon, I do think that Trump is the reason it went in that direction, right? I mean, in March, there were all, all everyone on the left was like, don't wear a mask. And Donald and all of my conservative people were like, mask up, right? And it flipped. And I think a lot of the reason it flipped was that Trump was so defiant about it. Yeah, I. I mean, a, a, obviously, in most things, there are many causes. I just, when I think back to the timeline, I, I don't, I know Trump has sort of done this. He's also sometimes worn masks. He's been, as usual, he's inconsistent about everything. And I don't recall a lot of his crazy news conferences with him railing about how you shouldn't wear a mask. I think no, but he mocked reporters who yeah. were wearing it. And he yeah, said, no, he no, politically correct. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah and he went after he Biden did. for wearing a mask. Oh, he and wore he, the And he refused even like, I mean, the, the White House was refusing to wear masks in hospitals. We're like, you wear a mask anyway. <laughs> and the people who, wore, really who worked in the White House and did come in wearing masks reported that they were they were um, mocked. They were bullied out of wearing he like literally they bullied their staff out of wearing masks in the White House. Yeah, I know. I agree. And I, that was that was around, I think, reported in the Times around like in September. And I do think by then it had definitely become that way. Um, I just. We'll, we'll have to do our cultural history yes. down the road. And, <laughs> All right, let me causality. Um, let, let me bring bring Linda into this. And Linda, you know, at, at the risk of um, at the risk of seeming to be 
Trump obsessed, uh, which I, I plead somewhat guilty to. I can only add that I joined in this by about 250 million other Americans, but uh, alas, but that's soon to come to an end. But I, I do have to say, though, that it is interesting, isn't it, that a whole swath of America, of American people have decided that they have a deep mistrust of lots of sources of information. They don't trust the media, they're biased, and they don't trust scientists, and they don't trust a lot of people. And there are good reasons to be to be skeptical about everybody. And, you know, I'm not saying that you should be completely a, a naive, but the thing is, those very same people who say that they're very deeply skeptical, they believe everything that comes out of the biggest liar we've ever seen in American <laughs> life. Right. That's the part that just doesn't yeah, it doesn't work. quite. Yeah, it, there's some cognitive dissonance going on here. I don't. I don't quite know how that works. Look, yeah. I think you know the fact that we are so polarized. The fact that um, you know the internet uh, and social media have, in many ways, enlarged our lives, enlarged our horizons. It, they've also served in a very um, counterintuitive way to narrow our perspectives. Because Absolutely. what ends up happening is people get themselves in these little subgroups. I mean, you're seeing it now across social media with new platforms emerging, you know, Twitter uh, marks things that are blatantly false. And so now we have uh, parlor or parlay. I'm not sure which, how you pronounce it, but you know, this is the right wing alternative. Uh, then you have Facebook and you've got, you know, an, an alternative to Facebook, MeWe, or maybe MeWe is an alternative to YouTube. I don't know, but there, but the point is that, that, where we used to have conversations, where we used to be able to get, you know, information outside of our own little tiny, uh, you know, actual acquaintances. Um, now we're going, you know, into a different world where we get information outside of our actual friends and family, but they are people who believe just as we do. And, you know, as, as a conservative, maybe because much of my experience as a conservative has not been preaching to the choir, talking to people who already agree with me, but going on campuses, going into to groups of people who differ with me. I've always wanted to be able to test the arguments on both sides. I don't just watch CNN and MSNBC. I also watch Fox News Channel, uh, painful as that sometimes is. Uh, you know, I try to read some of the uh, publications on the right as well as the publications uh, that are sort of ma mainstream media. And I think the fact that so few Americans are doing that these days, and we have no common point of reference, we don't have the three networks evening news that we draw our information from, it's, it's been very damaging. And I don't know how to reverse that. I really don't. That is the great challenge going forward, is figuring out how we um, bridge these divides that are self-imposed um, in you know, entirely. Um, all right. Um, let us turn now to our parting thoughts, our highlight or low light of the week. Uh, Damon Linker. 
Well, this isn't actually from this week. It's a few weeks old, so that just shows that I, I really take the long view. Um, <laughs> uh, a young guy named Aaron uh, Sabarium, I think it's how it's pronounced. Uh, he's he's only a few years out of college, but he wrote an excellent essay a few weeks ago that's gotten a lot of attention online, and it kind of keeps circulating around. I only just found time to read it. Uh, it's in Francis Fukuyama's brand new uh, journal titled American Purpose, which is in general very good. I recommend it to everyone. Um, this is an essay titled The Weimarization of the American Republic. It's um, an analysis of the uh, German uh, interwar Republican government uh, between World War I and II uh, that issued in the rise of Adolf Hitler at the end when it collapsed. But I think quite rightly, the essay does not uh, try to map Trump onto Hitler in any kind of a, a, a childish way. It makes it gives a very sophisticated historical argument about how democracy collapsed in Weimar, and that collapse could have issued in another another fate. It didn't have to be Hitler and the Nazis. It could have been the communists. It could have been some other configuration of parties. So, again, there's nothing um, overly determined about the analysis. But just as a way of thinking about what it is that leads an established democracy to uh, kind of fall apart under centrifugal forces, uh, it's very good, worth reading, pondering, and worrying about. Can you say his last name one more time? Sibarium, spelled S-I-B-A-R-I-U-M. Okay, thank you. Megan McArdle. Um, I think it has to be the, the press conference we just witnessed with Giuliani. Um, you know, this is the this is like not just the low light of the week; it's the low light of the Trump presidency, um, mm. with the possible exception of some of his more theatrical denialism at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, we are seeing a sitting president just refuse to admit that he lost, and. That is a position that the, the American Republic has not been in for a very long time, and it is a position that we should hope we never find ourselves in again. Amen. Bill Galston. Well, uh, Rudy Giuliani is now certifiably nuts, so my expectations from him are low and declining. Uh, but when it comes to an intelligent United States senator like Lindsey Graham, you know, I would nominate him as my busy, biggest disappointment of the week for his ham-handed efforts to intervene in the Georgia recount, you know, to endorse, induce the Georgia Secretary of State uh, to uh you know, in effect, toss out ballots or question the validity of ballots whose validity is really not in question. Uh, Graham ought to be ashamed of himself. He knows better. Uh, and it's the, it's the flip side of the Georgia St Secretary of State as a real stand-up guy in the face of enormous, enormous pressure, which leads me to a broader point. Uh, and it goes in the other direction from something Megan said right at the beginning. Uh, the, you know, the success of the Republican party at every level other than the presidential level means 
that Trump was defeated, but Trumpism is riding high. Uh, there will be no turning back, in my judgment, uh, for what Donald Trump revealed 90% of the Republican Party to be. Uh, and, you know, if, if people are hoping that, that someone like Larry Hogan is going to be a serious contender for the 2024 Republican uh, presidential nomination, they're looking at evidence that is invisible to me. Uh, the best we're going to get out of the Republican Party for the foreseeable future is Trumpism with a human face. Uh, some people may welcome that. Uh, I don't. And I bet there are a lot of other people on this podcast who don't either. Uh, I, I agree with you, Bill, about uh, Larry Hogan's chances so much the worse for America. Uh, but Linda. Um, I wanted to point out something a little bit different and maybe add a counterweight to some of the what we've been talking about, and that is Harvard University has apparently is now there is a petition being circulated at Harvard University demanding that the school require accountability for members of the Trump administration before uh, persons are allowed to speak or teach on campus. And I think this is exactly wrong. I mean, it doesn't mean that you don't exercise discernment when you're uh, picking speakers. I'm not sure that, you know, I would want to invite uh, Kaylee McEnany, even though she, apparently she has a, a Harvard law degree, which totally floored me when I learned uh, that, uh, you know, you wouldn't want her to be the commencement speaker at Harvard Law. Uh, but on the other hand, I think it is a very bad idea to kind of want to um, punish every single person who served in the Trump administration and prevent them from earning a livelihood or from uh, being uh, able to have uh, a, a public presence. I mean, there are assistant secretaries in, in, that I'm familiar with in this administration who I think actually have done a very good job. And I would hate to see that they have been so tarnished by serving under Trump that they would never be allowed back into uh, polite society. Yeah, you want to keep out the people who were out there um, spouting lies, uh, demonstrable lies, uh, and that would just be prudent to do. But to have this sort of sweeping, uh, we can't ever let anyone who had any association with Trump ever appear on our campus, I think is a big mistake. Okay, but there's got to be an exception for Mike Pompeo. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. There's a there. I, Dante didn't have a, a, a ring in hell that quite was low enough for Mike Pompeo. Um, okay. Well, I want to highlight um, the Crown season four, uh, which I am enjoying. Uh, but I just want to register a slight demurral in there. Of course, it's not history, it's drama. Please bear that in mind when you're watching any of these things. A lot of people say they think they know things because they saw them in a documentary or in a drama and, you know, you got to check everything um, to the degree you can. But um, their depiction of Margaret Thatcher, I think, is excessively harsh. Um, she was uh, a great figure. She was the first female prime minister of Britain. She did something right. She served for 11 years. And actually, she did a lot right. Uh, the, what they don't show you in the series is that Britain was 
in desperate shape when she was uh, when she first came into office. Um, there had been a series of terrible strikes that had crippled public services. Uh, garbage was piling up in the streets. They couldn't even bury their dead. Their morgues were overflowing because of a strike of the uh, of the uh, burial society. So it was um, it was a mess and. Um, and she did. She did tough things. She had to conquer the raging inflation, which was twenty five percent when she took office, which is just staggering. Um, and uh, and it did cause some hardship, a high unemployment, as it did here when we had to go through a very similar process when Reagan first came into office. So, I think people should enjoy the series. I'm certainly enjoying it, but bear in mind that Thatcher um, was uh, handed a tough uh, a tough situation and handled it quite well. And I recommend a piece that appeared in uh, The New Yorker in uh, 2013 on the occasion of her death by somebody who was raised in Britain, John Cassidy. And it's called Maggie and Me, How Thatcher Changed Britain. It's not at all a, um, a you know, a, a complete uh, celebration of Thatcher, but it is, I think, a fair portrayal of her. We will uh, be taking next week off. We wish all of our listeners a happy and healthy and safe Thanksgiving. Uh, ours is going to be much truncated, basically uh, a Zoom Thanksgiving because of the virus situation. But um, but we will return the following week. And uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us again. Mm-hmm.